Second Kings chapter 5, the first nine verses, 19 verses, excuse me. Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable, because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid, and she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said unto her mistress, Would God, my Lord, were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. And one went in and told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel. And the king of Israel, excuse me, the king of Syria said, Go to, go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand pieces of gold and ten changes of raiment. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now when this letter is come unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman, my servant, to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. And it came to pass, when the king of Israel had read the letter, that he rent his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man doth send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. And it was so, when Elisha, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot, and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. But Naaman was wroth, and he went away and said, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me, and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, and strike his hand over the place, and recover the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldest thou not have done it? How much rather then, when he said unto thee, Wash and be clean? Then went he down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now therefore I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. But he said, As the Lord liveth before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it. But he refused. And Naaman said, Shall there not then, I pray thee, be given to thy servant two mules' burden of earth? For thy servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice unto other gods, but unto the Lord. And this thing the Lord pardon thy servant, that when my master goeth into the house of Rimmon to worship there, and he leaneth on my hand, and I bow myself to the house of Rimmon, when I bow down myself in the house of Rimnon, the Lord pardon thy servant in this thing. And he said unto him, 
go in peace. So he departed from him a little way. And thus is the reading of God's word. And all his children said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would open up your word unto us, that we would understand that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Obviously, that is the point of my sermon. Um, I'm going to start by speaking about Luke chapter 4 for just a couple of minutes here because um, it's very um, much related to what we just read there in um, 2 Kings chapter 5. And obviously so because Jesus makes reference to it. I want us to appreciate with respect to the history of Israel that is taking place in 2 Kings. It's um, about 830 years um, before Christ came. And it's uh, during that particular period, the kingdom has been divided. You have 10 tribes in the north called Israel, and you have two tribes in the south, uh, which would be, their capital would be Jerusalem. That would be the tribe of Judah and the tribe of uh, Benjamin. Um, the capital of the 10 northern tribes is Samaria. And if you study a history of Israel and the kings of both of, the, of, both of that divided nation, all of the kings of Israel were known to be um, evil. And some of the kings did well in, uh, in Judah, and some did not do well in, uh, in Judah, their capital, of course, being um, Jerusalem. So that is uh, salient for us to appreciate. When the Bible uses the word Israel, it can mean one of several different things. Sometimes it means um, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. Sometimes it means all 12 tribes together, a, a unified country. Sometimes it's only the 10 northern tribes, and sometimes it's Christ himself. So when you're reading through the scripture and you read things like we're going to see today in Romans chapter 9, not all Israel is of Israel. He's speaking about Christians, and that is another term for Israel is uh, believers in Christ, Christians only. So in the context of the, the historical context, it's a divided nation, and the ten northern tribes are known as Israel. So here we are in uh, Luke chapter 4. And the Lord is reading from the prophet Isaiah. And it says they delivered it to him. And I want us to ever appreciate throughout this whole thing that God is sovereign over everything. God has drawn everybody here this morning. He works in ways that um, we don't understand. And he's put it on your hearts this morning to be here as he has put it on my heart to share these things with you. So they happen to have, hand the uh, scriptures in the book of Isaiah to um, Jesus. And so he opens it up to Isaiah 61.1. And there he reads, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. It's upon me, Jesus, because he, that would be God, hath anointed me, Jesus, to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me, Jesus, me, Jesus, to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he comes down in verse 21, and he says, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Sadly, it's not fulfilled in their hearts, but it's fulfilled in their ears. He is telling everyone there that he is the anointed one, that he is the Christ, he is the Messiah spoken of in scripture. And then they're, after he reads this, and they're, they're pleased at what they are hearing, they say, is this not Joseph's son in verse 22? And the answer to that question is yes, it is Joseph's son. But he is also the anointed one. He is also uh, the Christ. But that they don't appreciate, nor do they see. So as he gets down further in there in verses 27 and 28, he's talking about um, the prophet Elisha, and he's talking about 
Naaman the uh, Syrian. And he's talking about the sovereignty of God, how that even though um, the Israelites are his chosen people, and that means different things to different people, but it, what it means is they have a covenant with the Lord. And I would share with you that there are three covenants in the scriptures. There's the everlasting covenant, which goes from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, and that overrides everything, the everlasting covenant. That's a covenant within the Godhead that God will have a people unto himself that are very much like his son, that he will make them in the image and likeness of uh, himself. Um, That is the everlasting covenant. And then there's the old covenant, which Israel, all 12 tribes, were under, and that was a conditional covenant. So keep that in view when you're reading the Old Testament. With respect to Israel, it's a conditional covenant. They had to do something that, uh, as far as their side of the covenant was concerned, if they failed to obey God, then God would take them off the land, which God has done. Then there's the new covenant, which is another unconditional covenant. It's essentially the everlasting covenant, and that's a covenant of of grace, again, between the Godhead that God would come, send his son, and would redeem a people unto himself. So Israel is under a conditional covenant, but they don't really appreciate that in the context of they have to um, present themselves as being righteous before the Lord. They have to obey the law, which they cannot do, and they have never been able to do, and nobody on this planet will ever be able to do. Nobody can keep the Ten Commandments. So he's going to provoke them here, and he's going to say, he's going to speak about how um, Elijah was sent, and that's an important word, Elijah was sent unto Sarapta, a city of Sidon. He was sent outside of the covenant people to another people that were not part of the covenant, and there the, uh, the widow was blessed by Elijah. Then he gets down there in verse 27, and he says, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. Now, after he initially, they thought his words were gracious. Then when he gets down here and starts speaking about um, the sovereign grace of God, um, they don't receive that well. And it says in verse 28, it says they were filled with wrath when they heard that. Now, in Romans chapter 10, verses 19, the Lord speaks about how that they were going to respond to that. And he says in verse 19 of Romans chapter 10, he says, But I say, did not Israel know? Did not Israel know that they would reject the gospel and yet the Gentiles would receive it? Did not Israel know? First Moses saith unto, saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation will I anger you. But Isaiah is very bold and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. Naaman was not seeking the Lord, but yet he was found by the Lord. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. But to Israel he saith, all day long have I stretched my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. Gainsaying means they were speaking against him. So the Lord continued to be patient and long-suffering, ever reaching out to his people, and yet uh, they would not hear him. So... Um, in Romans, the question is asked, did not Israel know? Did they not know that this was going to happen, that they would reject the gospel, and yet it would go out to um, the Gentiles? And Deuteronomy 32, 21 is where Moses tells them what's going to happen. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 20 and 21, this is um, the Lord speaking through Moses. Deuteronomy 32, 20, he says, And he said, I will hide my face from them, And we'll see what their end shall be, for they are a very froward generation, children in whom is no faith. 
He's describing national Israel. They are children in whom is no faith. Verse 21, they have moved me to jealousy with that which is not God. By the way, in the scripture, jealousy is a positive term. Envy is a negative term. I am jealous over my wife, meaning I love her and I don't want anything to come between us in the relationship. Um, The guy across the street has a Ferrari. I am envious of him because I want what belongs to him. I want that Ferrari. I am jealous for what is mine. I am envious for what is yours. So when God uses the term jealousy, I am a jealous God. That's a positive term. He loves you and he will do whatever is required to take things out of your life that um, come between you and him in terms of a loving relationship. So anyway, he's jealous over them. They have moved me to jealousy with that which is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their vanities, and I will move them to jealousy with that which is not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Sadly, provoking them to jealousy did nothing but create anger and wrath in them them, rather than having their hearts turned where they would possess um, the God that had a uh, covenant with them. So in Moses, he's saying what is going to happen, and it did happen certainly with the Ninevites because, recall, he set Jonah up there and the Ninevites repented, and yet later in the history of Israel, he uses the Ninevites to come down and, and punish them. So we have to appreciate what is going on here when we get to Second Kings, that this is another example of the Lord provoking them to jealousy because he's going to heal Naaman of his um, leprosy. Now, in Second Kings chapter 5, I'm going to walk through it now. We can appreciate the sovereignty in God in the first two verses in there. Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable. And this should give you pause because by him, by Naaman, the captain of the Syrian host, by him the Lord had given deliverance or victory unto Syria. And he was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. So we have a man set before us here who was honored very much by his king. He's obviously a a great uh, captain, a military captain. But notice it says here, that it was the Lord giving Naaman victory. The Lord is the power behind Naaman, captain of the Syrian host, and he's given Naaman victory over the Israelites. So this is another thing that's provocative to the people. When you think of the Lord helping his people, you would not think that he would be giving another nation victory over them, and yet he does that. It says that right here in the first verse. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid, And she waited on Naaman's wife. Now, imagine yourself to be the family of this young woman who was taken captive by a a band of Syrians that had come down, a company of military people that had come down and taken your daughter away. And now she's a slave for the wife of the captain of the Syrian host. Now, you wouldn't think that that is a um, you wouldn't think that's a good thing. But what does God say? He says, all things work together for good to them that love God. We know in Amos chapter 3, verse 6, the Lord says, Shall a trumpet be blown in the city, meaning a, a, a battle cry, and the people not be afraid? That's a rhetorical question. Yeah, they're going to be afraid when the trumpet is blown. Shall there be evil in a city, and the Lord hath not done it? Well, the Lord is behind all of the things. He's the first cause of all things. When the Assyrians came down, the Lord was behind that. We just read that the Lord had given them victory. When God moved the Babylonians against them, 
God moved him. That was, that was God working out his salvation plan in the earth. When he brought the Assyrians down, it was the same thing. And then later he judges the Assyrians and he judges the Babylonians and he judges the Romans. God brings, lifts nations up and brings them back down. Um, so we appreciate what has happened here, but in the veracity of Scripture, and that the, the, the Scripture is true, but we don't always um, appreciate the sovereignty of God as it works out in our lives because we don't always see the end from the beginning. In 2 Samuel, excuse me, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 6 and 9, I'll read those. In verse 6 it says, The Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. The Lord has power over life and death over everybody. And we certainly see that in the gospel in terms of him raising people from uh, the dead. In verse 9 he says, He will keep the feet of his saints. In other words, your salvation is secure in him. And the wicked shall be silent in darkness. And then this verse is important. For by strength shall no man prevail. By strength shall no man prevail. And this is salient with respect to Naaman because he's a mighty man of valor. He trusts in himself. He thinks that the victories that he has uh, wrought are because of him and because of his superior uh, military um, strategies and his strength as a, um, as a um, military man. However, in verse 1, we just read of uh, 2 Kings chapter 5 that it was the Lord who granted them victory. So God uses all sorts of interesting ways to work in his people that we don't understand. In Isaiah chapter 55, um, verse 8 and 9, we read, For the, my thoughts, this is God speaking, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways saith the Lord. If I had been the parents of this poor um, maid that had been taken captive, I would not appreciate that God was working in her and working in Syria to bring God's glory to that nation. But again, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus makes specific reference to this instance. So there's but no question that God has his hand on every aspect of Naaman's um, conversion. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So the Lord is working things out here in ways that we do not appreciate or to understand. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, which I'd already quoted a portion of it, but I'll read it again in Romans 8, 28. It says, For we know, and you can only know this by faith and by reading your Bible and seeing how all of these things are connected, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God to them who are the called according to his purpose. God is going to call Naaman. Naaman is going to, ultimately, he's going to love God. And verse 29, for whom he did foreknow, that would be Naaman, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Christ is the firstborn among many brethren, and the saints are being conformed to the image of Christ. Verse 30, moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. So I want us to appreciate something here, that God is working in Naaman's life. He's an elect from before the foundation of the world. God is going to get him and make sure that he receives the gospel, and he's going to regenerate him. He's going to um, save him from his sins. We have to appreciate what's written, and as you, if you were to continue in Romans here, you would appreciate that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not the nation of Syria, not the king of Syria, not the king of Israel, not uh, all of the, uh, the military conflicts between the various 
nations. Nothing can separate Naaman or you or me from the love of God. Uh, And he's going to give a list of things here, but I always add to it. Not even you can separate yourself from the love of God. Doesn't matter what kind of a sinner, how reprobate you may be, when God uh, has determined to save you, he will, in fact, um, save you. Nothing can separate you from the love of from the love of God. So God is going to send a military group of people down into Israel. They're going to take this little girl. She's going to come up and she's going to preach the gospel in the house of of uh, Naaman, and it's going to end up uh, in the king's house. And so the king's going to direct his his steps down there. So Naaman, I would say, without doubt, is uh, is an Israelite by definition. Romans chapter nine, meaning that he's of the elect. Now, in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9, it talks to us about the way our lives are run. And in Proverbs 16, 9, it says, A man's heart devises his ways, but the Lord directeth his steps. Naaman has no idea that that leprosy is going to work for his good, that the Lord is using that leprosy to shape his thinking and to motivate him to uh, listen to this um, Israelite young maid and go down into Israel to seek the help of this particular prophet. Now, we have talked about Romans chapter 10 a number of times and because we keep seeing it everywhere we go in Scripture with respect to how the gospel gets to different people. In Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 15, it talks about how people cannot can't call on the name of the Lord. They can't call on the name of somebody whom they have not heard. Well, and how would they hear unless a preacher is sent? So clearly here, God has sent a preacher from Israel, and he went. He had the Syrians go down and, and um, uh, take this young maid prisoner and brought her up to Syria. So God is working things in the background, orchestrating all events, moving nations against each other, sending a preacher to Naaman, and that is what he has done here. So the Lord has sent a preacher up um, to this woman. Now, excuse me, up to Naaman. Now, leprosy in the scripture represents sin. It is something that festers for a long time, and back in those days it was, um, it was fatal. The wages of sin is death. In Isaiah chapter 1, it speaks about how God views the Israelites, and by extension, this is how he sees every person. In Isaiah chapter 1, 5 and 6, he speaks about people. He says, the whole head is sick, and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and purifying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. So that the Lord is telling us that um, this is the way he views us in terms of um, our sin. Our sin is a fatal disease, and there's nothing righteous in us, and God is going to have to cleanse us. And so in verse 18, he says, Come now, let us reason together, Saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as, as wool. So we start in sin. We start depraved. We start with no understanding or appreciation of God. Um, we start with all men have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. And that's, that's the condition of Naaman that is set before us here. And while I'm quoting from Romans... Um, from uh, um, Psalm 14. I wanted to find Psalm 14. Here it is. In Psalm 14, um, the Lord says this very thing. And so Romans is quoting from Psalm 14 because I've read Romans a number of times. I'm going to read Psalm 14 because it says the same thing, but I want us to appreciate the Lord is repeating himself. 
In Psalm 14, verse 2 and 3, the Lord says, The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They're all gone aside. They're all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. So in Psalm chapter 14, the Lord is saying the same things that he says in Romans 3.23. And this is the way it is with Naaman. He's not seeking the Lord, except for now he's got a reason to uh, listen to this young lady because of his leprosy. As far as he's concerned, he's got, there's no solution to his issue here. And so it is with sin. There is only but one solution for sin, and that solution is uh, Jesus Christ. And so in verses 5 and 6 of uh, 2 Kings... Um, we can appreciate that. Um, we get down to verse 5 here. And the king of Syria said, go to. What's interesting here as we look at this is the king of Syria seems to believe this. In other words, you need to go to Israel and um, find a uh, solution to your leprosy. So we see that in verses 5 and 6, that the king of Syria believes. And the king of Syria said, go to, go, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand pieces of gold and ten changes of raiment. What is Naaman doing? He's going to enter into works. That's the first uh, place people go. When they get religious, they, they think that there's something that they have to do. They think that there's something that they have to give to the church. They think that there's something they have to give to the pastor. They think that there's some work that they have to engage in. And so he's obviously a wealthy man, and he's gathering up a considerable sum of wealth to take down to Israel that he will in some way remunerate the individual that is responsible for his healing. And so uh, the king sends a letter down, uh, the king of Syria sends a letter down to the king of Israel, the king of Syria evidently believing that this is a possibility down there. And uh, how was he received by the king of Israel? Just as Moses said, they are a people of no faith. The king of Israel doesn't believe that there's anybody that can heal him. And so he's thinking that the king of Syria is being provocative, uh, wants to engage in a... uh, a quarrel with him that he might have caused to come down now and some moral justification to come down and engage in a war with him and uh, take more of the things that he has. Um, So just as the Lord has said back in um, Deuteronomy that they are a people uh, without faith. And so as we read in Romans chapter 10, there we are, we have it. He's provoking the Israelites to uh, jealousy. They are a people of no faith. Now, interestingly enough, you get down to verse 8 there, and the king of Israel has not called for Elisha to come. And yet, Elisha hears about it. Why is that? Because he's a prophet and the Lord speaks to him. Verse 8, And Elisha, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? In other words, you have no faith. (laughs) Why would you do that? I'm here. You know I'm here. Um, But you don't send for me. So he says, uh, let him come down now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. In other words, I'm going to heal him, or he's going to be healed. Let me step back. He is going to be healed by God. Um, And so have him come to me, and he will know that there is a God in Israel. So when you look at verses 9 through 12, we can appreciate um, that Naaman is a very proud man. So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot, and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. So he comes in this military might and his pomp. Um, Chariots and horses are a sign of strength in the scriptures, and the Lord tells us in a number of places, do not trust in them, do not trust in horses or trust in chariots, do not trust in men, but trust in God, not by might, but my um, spirit, saith the Lord. Um, 
So he's obviously trusting himself. He's a very proud man. And then um, he's told to do something um, that is very simple. And he's, he's struggling with this. And his servants say to him, if, um, you, know, if it, you had been told to do some great thing, would you not have done that? And so it is with people. You have two religions on the planet, and I don't even like to call the other the Christianity a religion. You have that which is works-based or thought-based. It's something that is based in man. You either can work your way to glory by doing um, some form of good works and charity, um, or you can think your way that you can engage in the Eastern religions where you meditate yourself to some higher level of uh, spiritual awareness, but it's rooted in man. And the other one is grace. And the churches across the planet are full of people trying to engage in works-based religion. And those that are engaged in faith-based, that is to say the works of Christ, those are by far the vast minority. And the Lord says that he's only going to save a remnant. That's the Lord's word, is a remnant of people shall be saved. And when the Lord comes to Israel uh, in the Gospels, and he says that to the people, he says, search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life. In other words, you think by the law that you're going to be justified, that you can engage in a behavior and an activity, and so you're searching into the Scriptures to see if there's something that you can do to make yourself right with God. And then the Lord continues, and they are they, the Scriptures are those which testify of me. Everything is teaching about me, the Lord says. And he's standing right in front of them, and he says, and you would not come to me that you might have life. You would not come to me that you might have life. So people want to engage in some wonderful activity, some work activity. And the Lord tells us again in Romans 3.20 that by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. There's nothing that a person can do to justify themselves before God. All our works of righteousness are as filthy rags before um, the Lord. So that's the road that Naaman wants to go down. So he's very wroth at it, and the servant says, hey, if it was a great thing, you would have done it. But this is a very simple thing to do. And the gospel, in, um, in its essence, is extremely simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. That's Acts chapter 16, verses 30 and 31. That's the occasion when the uh, Roman jailer um, sees that his prisoner... Doors have been opened, and the prisoners, which were formerly shackled, are unshackled. And he thinks to himself, if anybody has escaped, why, my life will be uh, in the balance. I will be slain because my prisoners have gotten away. So he comes out, and he's rather upset. And uh, he says to um, uh, Paul and Silas, he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And the answer is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. That's all you have to do. And yet, people won't do it. Um, in Isaiah chapter 45, the Lord uh, says the same thing about how salvation is exclusively in Christ, and it rests exclusively in Him. In Isaiah 45, verse 21, the Lord says, Tell ye, and bring them near, Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Again, the everlasting covenant. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. And then in verse 22, he says, Look unto me 
and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. Look, meaning believe on me, look to me, look to Christ, and be ye saved. That's all a person has to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and their sins are covered. And so um, not only does God um, tell you what you should do, but in 1 John uh, chapter 3, verse 23, it's actually a commandment. You are commanded to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And 1 John 3, 23 says, And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. You are commanded by God to believe on his Son. There is no other way to glory. There is no other way to be one with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There is no other way for eternal fellowship with God than to simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he tells you what you should do, and then he commands you to do it because there is no other way. And so as uh, our narrative continues here in um, 2 Kings, what does Naaman do? Well, God's impressing this truth on his heart through his servants, and so what does he do? He obeys. And obedience is something certainly that is required of the saints. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. You must obey that. Um, And so uh, he obeys in verse 14. Then he went down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. So what he's gone down, he's gone down into the water and he's dipped in the water seven times and he's engaging in what we would call a baptism, meaning he's identifying himself with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And that is what baptism is. He's looking to somebody else to clean him. Surely he's got it figured out now that it's not the river that's cleaning him because he's already made mention of. Surely there are better rivers up there in Syria. So why, uh, why the Jordan River? Well, it's obedience. He's obeying the man of God and doing what the man of God has told him to do. In Romans chapter 6, I'll read verses 3 through 11. It says, Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. In type, Naaman is doing that. Wherefore, we are buried with him, buried with Christ, by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also shall walk in newness of life. Those that are um, in Christ were baptized into his death, into his burial, and his resurrection, and so they should walk in newness of life, having come up from the grave with Christ. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. In other words, we're being conformed now to the image of Christ, because we have been raised from the dead with him. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Before we were in bondage to sin, we are not in bondage to sin anymore, because we have died to sin. Verse 7, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For he, for in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, supplies to you and me, likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. We are no longer under the bondage of sin. We do not have to serve sin. We do not, uh, are not concerned with the consequences of sin. The wages of sin is death. That would be eternal death. Um, and so eternal death is not something that we are in. Fear of eternal death is not something that we are in bondage to. Hebrews chapter 2 talks about that all men are in bondage to fear of death. That does not apply to the saint anymore because they love the Lord. They've been identified with him. They've been united with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. And so continuing in 2 Kings here, we can see that there is fruit of, um, of salvation indicative in uh, Naaman's life in so much as that in verse... Um, 15, we see a humility in him, and that now when he comes to um, Elisha, he refers to himself as thy servant, and he wishes to bring a blessing, not a payment, but rather a blessing to Elisha, and he refers to himself as the servant of Elisha. So he's gone from a very proud man, a mighty man of valor who, who has great favor with the king of Syria, uh, one who was wroth that, that he... Uh, that Elisha did not come out to him, and now he refers to himself as a servant. And verse 16, but he said, Elisha says, As the Lord liveth before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Elisha is making a point here that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Faith is a gift of God. And Elisha was simply um, the one telling him what he needed to do, just like we might preach the gospel and tell people to point to Christ, accepting no reward or no credit because salvation is free grace. There is nothing that you would give God in return for your salvation. There is nothing that you could give God in return for what he has done for you. He has uh, given his son, given himself, his life on the cross, and you cannot possibly... Um, pay him back in any way. Your, your only thing you should do is thank God for what he has done. In Isaiah 42, the Lord says that he will not give his glory to another. Any man thinks that they, uh, because they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, they did it because they made an intellectual ascent, they understood the gospel, um, is stealing God's glory. God gets all the glory for our salvation. He has given us faith to believe on him. It is a gift from him. And you see this here in so much as Elisha says, no, I will accept Nothing. Now, again, consistent with the turning of his heart in verse 17, it says, And Naaman said, Shall there not then, I pray thee, be given to thy servant two mules' burden of earth? For thy servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice unto the gods, but unto the Lord. Clearly, he knows more about um, the gospel than um, someone might know absent direct preaching. I'm not sure I said that right. What he knows, he knows from this Israelite maid that has uh, been brought to him. This is a strange statement for him to make, but um, he's actually making reference to a part of Scripture in uh, Exodus, oh, it's Exodus 20, 24, and 25. This speaks about how an altar that you would make a sacrifice on is to be made. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 24 and 25, the Lord says here, An altar of earth shalt thou make unto me, and shall sacrifice thereon thy burnt offerings and thy peace offerings, thy sheep and thine oxen. In all places where I record my name, I will come unto thee, and I will bless thee. 
contrast what the Lord says here with all the mighty cathedrals you see all around the world where men build these glorious architectural monuments to God. God is saying, when you're approaching me, don't bring a tool with you. Don't use any tools. Uh, just dirt is what you're going to worship on. Then verse 25, he says, And if thou will make me an altar of stone, thou shalt not build it of hewn stone. In other words, no tools. For if thou lift up thy tool upon it, thou hast polluted it. You want to bring works to God, you've ruined whatever it is that you're bringing because all of our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. So Naaman has this understanding that, yes, this was all exclusively by grace. I understand that uh, I can't bring any works to God. If I'm going to worship God, make an offering for God. In other words, a offer that which represents Christ. Um, I'm not going to bring any tools. I'll just do it on the earth. And then he's going to talk about... Um, future, because the king of Syria relies heavily upon him. He's saying, if I go into the house and he worships a false god, hold that not to my charge, because that's not where my heart is. My heart is with you, is with the Lord, and it is the Lord that I love. So the Lord pardon me if I go in there with him, um, but that's not where my heart is. And then he says, of course, you'll be pardoned. And the same thing is true with us. As we go out into the world, um, you are going to go to other churches to attend funerals and things like that. And I have done that many times. And people are standing and sitting and they're kneeling and they're genuflecting and they're doing all sorts of things. And I'm sitting there and I'm praying for them that somehow through all of this foolishness that they will appreciate that God is sovereign, that he loves his people, and that he died for his people, and that there's nothing that we can bring or do um, to merit his, uh, his favor. So... If I go into the and go into a house, then the Lord I know will forgive me. That is not where my heart is. And in verse 19, as we finish here, and he said unto him, Elisha says unto him, Go in peace. So he departed from him a little way. In other words, physically he's removed, but his heart is with Elisha, and his heart is with the God of, um, of Israel, because he knows that there is no other God except for the God that is in Israel, as represented by Elisha there. And he has peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what, of course, Romans chapter 5 um, says that, 5 verse 1, that through the sacrifice of Christ that we have peace with God. So Naaman, as are all the saints, is judicially at peace with God because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So this morning when we engage in baptism, again, it's a public profession of faith. There is nothing in it. You are not engaging in any kind of a work. You are simply saying that, um, I believe that the Lord died for my sins and that I am baptized into his death. You go down on the water, into his burial, and into his resurrection. I am united with what took place on the cross and that he died um, for my sins. So with that, we'll say amen. Amen. amen.